0: Welcome to Cowen Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: I'm Jeroen Werber, biotech analyst at Cowen. I'm very excited to be joined by Natalie Hollis, CEO of Third Harmonic Bio and Effie Toshov, partner at Fenwick and West. In this episode, called A Look Behind the Scenes. We will discuss how decisions are made at the C-suite and boardroom, how M&A happens behind the scenes, and how the role of women is evolving in the biotech industry. Natalie is the CEO of Third Harmonic Bio. She has more than 20 years of executive leadership, business development, corporate strategy, and commercial experience. Prior to Third Harmonic, Natalie had several roles at Odentis, culminating as president and CEO. Prior to joining Odentis, she served as senior vice president of corporate development at Hyperion and held business development roles at Chi Pharmaceuticals, Intermune, and Genentech. Afi is partner at Fenwick and West. She serves as strategic counsel to life science clients on issues ranging from company formation, public offerings and financings, spin-outs, business development, M&A, and general corporate governance. Some of her corporate clients included Odentis, Denali, Juno, Loxo, and Morphic, and funds such as Fraser, New, Engle, New Enterprise Associates, Red Miles, and Simzera. Prior to joining Fenwick and West, Effie served as Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Sarepta, and General Counsel at Glycofine. Uh, ladies, it's so great to have you with us, and thank you for joining us. I feel like I've known each of you for many, many years across your various roles. And so it's a real pleasure to have you, I appreciate it. You're both very experienced in working closely with boards, uh, setting and executing strategy. And I imagine that you know all boards have a certain amount of commonality, but also some differences about how strategic decisions are made. So maybe Natalie, just to start with you, how informed, our biotech boards about the factors that can drive success or failures in strategy and, and how much input do they really provide into the suites, into the C-suites when they're setting the strategy? Hmm.
2: I think the particular level of knowledge or acumen that a board has is, is very personality and experience dependent. Um, your board, your investor board members see a breadth of experiences and the idea is that your operating directors experience depth and between those two you can triangulate in and get sufficient. uh, variability and experience to help management drive good decisions Um, in terms of how the board can help management set strategy, I think. I think setting strategy is fundamentally a management exercise um, that is to be sort of vetted and pressure tested with the board. If you set up a really effective board meeting and really focus on the key strategic topics, you can get great input from your boards. And that's, that's what I definitely try to do. Um, in working at my presentation materials and my agenda for my board meetings is is use the time to get the richest input on the most important elements of the business.
1: And maybe just in in your experience sort of more broadly, you know, throughout your whole career, do boards consider alternative strategies before choosing a certain path? You know, how how didactic is it versus the C-suite doing their best to choose strategy and then convincing the board and getting really the board sort of, you know, fine, fine-tuned fine input, but the, the strategy largely is driven by the C-suite without a lot of input from the board.
2: Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I think it varies over the life cycle of a company. I think in the very early days of a company, a board can be heavily involved in strategy development. And then as the the company matures as the leadership team sort of settles into to management of the company as the enterprise scales boards um, maybe then pull back into more of a governance mode versus a sort of direct strategy setting mode. But I think the reality is that strategy in biotech is a game of micro adjustments that happen on if not a daily basis, a weekly basis. And so you can set a strategy, but then based on your own data, on competitive dynamics, on market dynamics, you have to be willing to be nimble. Um, And since boards only convene on a quarterly basis, that de facto makes strategy a management exercise.
1: And Maybe to keep you on the spot, Natalie, what about in the, then on the C-suite, right? Because the C-suite ultimately owns strategy and then obviously the board oversees that. But how, how often and, and to what level do operating you know, operating teams really consider are we on the right path?
2: Oh, I think that's probably very operating team dependent. Um, In my operating teams, we think about it all the time. Our North Star is value creation, the most efficient path to value creation for patients and for shareholders. And to make sure that you are staying on that course, you need to ask yourself that question every time you convene. I think that's, that's probably a result of, you know, the time in which I grew up in this industry and the, the first half of, of my career were very lean times, not unlike what we're experiencing now. And so you had to be disciplined in your thinking and your resource allocation, but uh, I won't generalize and say the experience of my operating teams is the experience of every operating team. I think it
1: varies. Great. Effie? Maybe for you now, you've had a breadth of clients that have been very successful, and, and you know breadth of clients obviously that over time that maybe have had more you know harder times. As you think about what separates success or failure, what do you see from your vantage point at the board level?
0: Well, not surprisingly, Natalie already covered it, right? It's having the right people around the table with a diversity of backgrounds and different viewpoints for one. So not operate, not having this kind of group think, but having enough ideas around the table that there's going to be a diversity of views. Again, I'm, I'm hopefully I'm repeating what Natalie said because I happen to think it's right, but maybe, maybe from a different vantage point, having the right process in place. So having board materials ahead of time, having open and honest discussion without people getting defensive without people creating silos on the board without you know sort of. In the corner discussions not involving everybody that's that kind of process doesn't lead to having a full information set on which decisions can be made. Um, And you know, finally really being able to be nimble and being able to adjust to different market circumstances, right? Like just because you were, just because the plan said we're going to go public in, you know, the summer of two, 2023 and then we're going to get acquired, like it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Good companies take in all the information, they discuss it, they make a decision, they execute on the plan and they make adjustments as they need to. So while they're, are many different playbooks, many different ways to um, reach success, return value to shareholders and to patients. Every company that does well has that; in co- those three things in common.
1: And what about when you're, you know, involved in boards? When when programs are risky, how much discussion is there about sort of dual tracking the future and, and asking yourself, "Gee, this program, should we?" proceed, or do we to ourselves to really move in a different direction, maybe even cancel the program early pre-data? Uh,
0: again, at the risk of repeating myself, <laughs> it's part of the same overall discussion. It, if the company to be successful has to do the thing that is going to create the most value that is always the lens to which everything has to be evaluated. So the decision of go it alone, do it with a partner, um, you know, do a territory deal, okay, you know, it, it's all has to be seen through the lens of how are we going to be most successful? And the only way to make truly good decisions around that is to have the right people at the table, having the right type of discussions.
2: In an open manner. I In an
0: open manner. Really yes.
2: important comment that Effie made. You can have all the right people in the room, but if if the if the conversation is stifled, if there are sort of you know competing hidden agendas, if there's any sort of toxicity in the room, then you're not getting the benefit of, of everyone's experience. Of everyone's experience and everyone's perspective.
1: Because that, that's one of the things a lot of times I think increasingly on Wall Street we are much more than I would say five, 10 years ago, are getting questions focused on the board. And is the board fully attuned to where the company is going? Why aren't they canceling, let's say this program, or prioritizing a second program? You know, and a lot of times we wonder, obviously it's gonna be when times are good, you can continue to kind of move ahead. When times are not so good, sometimes you're a little bit more worried on coming out with bad news, even if it potentially improves your long-term outlook and so that this is definitely an area that that we're getting you know a lot of probing into
0: are you you
2: getting the probe i don't know if i'm allowed to ask questions back to you go ahead and do it (laughs) are you getting questions is the question about the board or is the question about companies being willing to make tough decisions i guess like i'm trying to understand where the question is coming from like are they asking for boards to do this more than they they would have thought in, in more high on the hog times? Or where's the question coming from?
1: I think the the questions are probably emanating from two angles. One, who to a certain degree, who really manages or oversees the company? Because increasingly in the last three, five years, you're seeing companies getting created and then boards hiring the CEO, as opposed to maybe historically on smaller companies, let's say, Where there was a founder, and then you know the board kind of followed the the founder, and then secondly, I think it 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 emanates from a a view on Wall Street where perhaps the management team is not always doing what's right, and Mm
2: -hmm. and so like like, where's the adult supervision? Is that what you're saying?
1: That's right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, and therefore your question was, what were you asking? And I would
1: say, especially that there's so many first time biotech CEOs.
2: Well, I think that's right. I mean, that's what you get when you have this glut of capital coming into our industry that is spurring fast and furious company creation and operating talent becomes the limiting reagent. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna dilute the talent and the experience in the C-suite. It's Toshov's law of biotech thermodynamics. Like there's just no way you can get around that. And so is the question, are the boards stepping in and, and somehow providing that supervision? Well, I think the other thing that you have to appreciate is that when there's this much company formation going on out there, these guys are busy. And now they're sitting on like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 boards. That's sort of the flip, the other element of, of this explosion in the number of companies. And so I think you've got experienced directors that are spread very thin. And then you have operators who might be very talented, but there's really no, there's no replacement for experience in this industry. I think it's a systemic problem that you can't say, oh, it's under experience management or it's directors not paying attention. It's just, it's one of the byproducts of this massive influx to capital.
0: And on your specific point, sort of, which I think was centered around kill it now, like get the, rip the bandaid off, give the bad news and move on um, versus, you know, put a little bit of lipstick on it and see what happens. Um, That, that is an example of where people with less experience sometimes make the wrong decision, right? They don't, it it takes a long time to understand um, that credibility is the most important currency anybody has. It is hard won Mm -hmm. and easily lost. And there is a real strong incentive, especially with type A people that everywhere, but in our industry, especially, to just say, well, it's not dead yet, and we can put a spin on, you know, on this. What is missed often with people with less experience is the real underappreciation of the importance of just being straightforward, maintaining integrity, building credibility.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think- I think that's true. And I, I also think it's, it's actually harder to kill programs when the market is frothier, because you have heart, you you have further to fall, um, if you deliver news that people don't like. I think now is a great time to be killing programs. Right, because you know? you're
0: not like, getting. Who cares? How much lower <laughs> you could you go? Yeah. <laughs>
2: when when trading at half cash is the new trading at cash. Like this is a great time to kill programs um, because the 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 relative pain might be great, but the absolute pain is is de minimis, um, But those are, those are deeply rutted behavioral patterns that are difficult to change. And I think we all have a little bit of sort of this, you know, denial going on where, where we, we, we think that, you know, every week, like, is it going to turn if we hit the bottom is, is what felt normal for the last six years going to come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, I think that it takes a while for sort of the reality of what these markets mean for operating plans to actually sort of trickle down and get pulled through.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, what, what we saw in February of 2021 was not real. And I I contend that what we're seeing now, just open the screen now, that's not real either. I um, mean, what, what, What's
2: real, Yaron, can we ask you that? Where's the, where's the real? <laughs>
1: Yeah, companies trading at uh, fractions of cash um, and losing seventy percent market cap in six months—that's not real. Yeah, companies going up, IPOing, and then quadrupling in value for no reason—that's not real either, right? What's real is value creation, getting awarded for it, and and debating the fundamentals of the company based on the future outlook, not based on. On frothiness and groupthink and thematic investing—that's not real, right? And in biotech, I think we've been. Yeah. But we always see—we we see these, you know, these massive shifts, you know, over time, and they usually are in tandem between bull markets and bear markets. And uh, it's the path in, in you're right life happens when you're making other plans. What's real yeah. in biotech is, but when things are not feeling real, maybe, Effie, just for you, what what's the biggest learning? for you, you know, in your careers about value creation from, from an, an operating viewpoint, from, from the company side?
0: You know, I thought about this a lot. <laughs> um,
1: this is the one question that's gonna get us back to a bull market, Effie. So you gotta get this right.
0: So nail it. Nail it. There just, there is no one playbook. Everyone, you're... You have to sort of be disciplined enough to look at all the facts, have the right people around you to make the right decisions, and then be able to be flexible enough to change if you need to. Um, That is a learning that comes with over 20 years of experience. When one first starts out, you think that this is the way it always is. And when I first started out, I worked, you know, early in my career, I worked at Protein Design Labs. We could charge people $10 million for humanizing an antibody. Now your grandmother can humanize an antibody in her kitchen and you can't charge anything for that, right? Um, but the blueprint back then was you do some licensing deals, then maybe you get acquired, maybe you go public in the middle, maybe not. Um, but but that was kind of the thing. and. Um, There were, you know, then 2008, there were a bunch of single asset companies and everybody wanted to be an LLC and they were going to set themselves up from the beginning, like Adimab so that they could just do partnerships and, you know, sort of collect money and distribute it on the milestones and the royalties. And then 2012 came and everybody wants to be a fully integrated biotech company and raise a ton of money and, and, and go public. Right. And the reality is that there, there is not one size fits all. One has to look at the intersection of the science and the business and the legal and say, this is the right modality for this for this idea so that I would say that is my biggest learning.
1: And Natalie, what about you?
0: Well, your own, as you might have seen, I recently
2: wrote a guest blog post for Bruce Booth (laughs) summarizing the learnings of my 20 plus years in this industry. Um, And while. Counselor Toshav is over there giggling. I actually, it was a great exercise because it really forced me to distill down um, my learnings on how to create value. And and I've always been, so in four steps. Step one, I've always been a big believer in start at the end and work backwards. Make sure that there is a, a viable need out there in the market that you can uniquely address. And then every decision in research and development should have the North Star of making a medicine that adds value and can be accessed by patients. Number two, you've got to, even if you have a big vision, you can't conflate big vision with big plan. I think you always have to start small, execute well, earn your way into doing more um that's how you sort of spend rationally that's how you can sort of incrementally increase value and not live your life raising money continuing to raise money to deliver on the promises that you made in the last financing I've lived that way and it's painful number three you've got to make tough decisions when they when it's time to kill a program you got to kill a program when you have um you know an exceedingly talented person who's an asshole Hopefully I can say that you got to let them go and, and really make tough decisions because number one, it's in the best interest of the business. And number two, your employees can smell bullshit and leading with integrity and intellectual honesty is really important. And then finally, you've got to raise the money. You can't time time the markets. There's no such thing as non-dilutive financing. You've got the only way we we are in the drug development business. It is expensive and it's rife with risk. But the only way we create value is to continue investing and keep going.
1: Yeah, Um, that's that's awesome. Um, And I feel like everybody should learn those four concepts and make them their Bible when they take a company public or when they first join a CEO, frankly.
2: I think it's, well, thank you. I mean, I of course think it's wise because, you know, I, I wrote it, your own. So, but, um, but I do think that there's, that what we experienced for the last six years, it, 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 it infused us all with a sense that this is easier than it actually is. And I think having some humility about this and realizing that it's hard and you're gonna have to do hard things in order to win is is really sort of the key ingredient to success
1: doing hard things is always easy in hindsight but it's always the right decision
2: yeah yeah do you know that that uh teddy roosevelt man in the arena quote no oh it's it's a great quote but it it's it's basically about you know credit goes to the man who is not afraid to fail who might be face down in the dust with blood all over his face, but he gets up and keeps going because there's, there's valor and value in the attempt. And that has always resonated for me because I've had really, really dark moments in my career. Um, and I've had high highs too, but like all of them, the sum total of them is, it gives you wisdom.
1: Yeah, and you know, this is a, the episode of this title is very apropos named to Look Behind the Scenes. And it's always like the first advice is to a new CEO is, hurry up and get your first blow up out of the way. Because <laughs> never the first one that works as much as we hate to admit it. So this is a biotech deal-making podcast series. And now everybody's absolutely loves to talk about M&A, even though there isn't a lot of M&A so far, at least in the middle of April, 2022. So maybe um, Effie to you and then Natalie, what leads to decisions to sell a company as opposed to continue going alone? And, and you've been involved in several, you know, fairly high profile exits recently Effie on your client side. So maybe can you talk about that? Did they all plan to get acquired?
0: Well, one should never plan to get acquired. You run your business. Uh, this, this is an old adage and it's true. Companies are bought they're not sold. And that really has to be where where everybody is grounded, or, or the process doesn't go well. Um, in terms of the decision, it, that's often pretty clear, right? Um, most M&A happens with a convicted buyer that puts an offer on the table that is enough to get management board attention. And then it's just... A, an exercise in getting the price to where you want it and making sure that the people are taken care of. But in, in, in the M&A that I've been involved in, it, it hasn't, it, the, the, the price was right and was designed to be right and was the right thing that was um, viewed to, to return to the shareholders. It was the right decision. There there are other kinds of m a, but at the end of the day, it's what is what is in the best interest of the company and of the shareholders? And that I mean from a legal and a business perspective that that is what guides the decision. You know are there are, are there questions behind that question because it's sort of a, a pretty, you know, those offers are designed to be enticing, right? Mm-hmm. This is a very different market and I think, my prediction would be this market will make m M&A and very difficult because there are lots of companies that are out there, have done financings at three times their current share price, and it's very hard for acquirers to come in and pay three to four X premium on a share price. And, and that's what they'll have to do to get them above the last financing. So I think actually the more interesting questions are going to come now. I agree with that. Because when you're trading at a high and you're getting a hundred percent premium over that for M&A, it's a pretty clear <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think we're heading into a more interesting, more interesting time.
1: And yeah. In most cases, that the companies you're saying companies are bought or not sold, that means there is an incoming bid. In your experience, do companies or is it more often to just get an unsolicited bid, or is it equally or 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 you know more often for the companies to actually go out and shop themselves and do a process?
0: I have never seen a successful outcome to a company, as my good friend Natalie Hollis and very wise CEO would say putting on a sandwich board and saying it's for sale. (laughs) That just never, it it just, it is, big pharma has its own set of goals that needs to achieve for their pipelines, for whatever they're trying to accomplish that year. Um, And it has very little to do with any decision by biotech to put out a for sale sign. They are operating on their own their own set of bureaucratic incentives, they will decide, I, you know, this year, I want a precision oncology company, we're going to look around at the precision oncology companies, we're going to choose the right one. And if we want it, we are going to put an offer on the table that they can't say no to that. That's the way good M&A gets done, because the buyer is convicted, they really want it. And the sellers motivated to
2: I think it would be interesting to go back and look at all of the 14 D9s from, from public acquisitions and do an analysis of the frequency with which the ultimate acquirer doesn't prevail. Because I mean those, those data market,
0: yeah, those data have... exist, right? And 99 percent of the time it is the That's first right. there. It's the first and, and there's a caveat to the first the the first bidder almost always wins. And, and there's almost rarely a second and a third bidder for, for something that is pre-commercial. Once you are commercial, you can have a true auction because then it's just money. Then it's just an asset and whoever values that or thinks they can make the most of it can come in, right? Like a pharma set or, you know, something later later stage. But, you know, phase before phase three, it's sort of beauty is in the eye of the holder. You can get somebody else, to the table but yeah. it's gonna be the buyer that in it, that kicked it off that loved it the most that needs to have it that's gonna win yep that's how that we, kind of M&A, yeah that kind of MA is is co- it, the real kind of tremendous returns blockbuster MA comes from those types of inbound offers yep
2: and when you get one of those you shouldn't futz around you should just go
0: put your head down execute
2: yeah get it done
1: and natalie in in your experience it sounds like it's it's you agree and it's unsolicited but is it does it does it precipitate out of strategic discussions or partnering discussions or is it at times completely unsolicited
2: well effie and fenwick have been by my side for every acquisition i've been a part of i believe so my data are her data on this but um I, uh, no, you just, I I mean, what I've learned, if I had a number five on my blog post, it would have been that you, you don't, there's no such thing as building a company to sell versus building a company to do it alone. You, you build a great company and, and if someone wants to come along and own it, you react to that. Insofar as the strategy of every company I've led has been, let's build a great company. (laughs) The M&A comes out of the strategy. But one conversation I do not enjoy having that often comes up is: Should we try to sell this thing? Because that's just not how it works. Great. and
0: I it just to add, I completely agree with that. Back to your discussion, your question about does do does M and result from partnership? Yes, partnership discussions. Yes and no. And here's where the 14 D9s I think are a little bit misleading because in every background section of every description of a merger, you will see, you know, the parties had discussions with each other for months, blah, blah, blah. But that's, that is misleading, right? Often it's just a casual yep. BD meeting at the lowest levels, right? And then, and, and not some like hot and heavy partnership discussion that then flips to MA Because, Often those are coming from two very different parts of a huge organization. Low-level BD discussions has nothing to do with 200% premium offered by the company. So while the two can happen at the same time, one does not very often just automatically flip into the other. There's some intervening something that happens. 100%
2: agree.
1: Um. Great. Which is, which is, frankly, in many ways, again, and I'm glad we're really sort of probing all of that. It's, it's, it's in many ways very counterintuitive to what most people uh, in in on the on the Wall Street side are thinking. Who, who they think that m and happens precipitously, very quickly, based on a need from the buyer, like a phase three fails, and the next week they're going to buy X Y Z company. It just doesn't work that way. Or that a company is shopping themselves and they're going to get acquired imminently because all biotics are shopping themselves.
0: I, I think, I think really B happened. doesn't
2: work that way. A, it does sometimes happen precipitously, the actual action of, hey, we got a letter, but there's there's generally a lot of strategy that's going on internally within the buyer to get to the point that you decide, hey, we want to get into gene therapy or we want to buy a, a Precision Oncology. But, but from the experience from the seller side is, oh my God, we just got a letter. Right.
0: The letter is a culmination of a lot of work on the buyer side. Yep. And often it comes out of the blue. Yep. And then for
2: the seller, it's time to get to work. Well, you've been getting to work, but now you're, you're running a
1: different process. So one of the other topics that that I think is very topical and very important, and I'm glad both of you agreed to participate in this podcast, is really the role of women and the growing prominence of the role of women in biotech. Yet still, less than half the seats in the C-suite or boardroom are, are women, and correct me if I'm wrong based on your experiences, but that's definitely the prevailing data. So maybe to both of you, and this is obviously a lot more personal, but what has been your experiences as women building your career in the last 20 years, right? You know, 15 years ago must feel very differently than now. Um, Sure.
2: First of all, we're going to start our own podcast on this, your own, so we're not going to use all. Material here, but we'll give you some snippets.
1: You got to give me the top five snippets, though.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm not going to scoot myself. So, I think I think the question, the comment about the relative dearth of women in leadership uh, and board positions now, is related to what it was like 15 years ago, because. When you want diversity in leadership and on boards, you can't snap your fingers and and um, and make a, a you know sort of create this this pool of super experienced um, you know well track record people of various backgrounds. Um, Fifteen years ago, it was really hard to be a young working mother that wanted to keep working. You had to make a number of In my mind, like bullshit, dichotomous decisions between your career and your personal life. And I think the nature of those decisions and the lack of flexibility at that time forced a lot of women to make decisions that impacted their careers such that you don't have as many women that are, you know, seasoned. (laughs) <laughs> that kept going in the early years.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but think about what our lives would have been back then, even if we had Zoom. I mean, it took the pandemic to give us real operating Zoom. And yeah. we, didn't, we didn't have that. We didn't we have didn't that. Have, no, we didn't have a mother's room anywhere where we no. could you know, take conference calls and pump. And I mean, we, yeah, we probably can't say what we did to get around those obstacles. On this podcast. But those yeah. were obstacles that we had to overcome. They, they were they were real.
2: Um, I when I wanted to work from home a couple days a week after my first daughter was born, I had to quit my job as an employee, forfeit my equity and my benefits, and consult back to the company in order to make that work. When I, I came back from maternity leave after my first daughter was born three months on the dot because that's what you did one of the things that i really relish now that i'm in charge of my little company but i at least get to sort of set the culture for 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 my company is that we lean into flexibility and um i realize leaning in is a even a loaded term um i i embrace the flexibility Um, that Zoom provides. Um, We are intentionally hiring on a geographically dispersed basis so that I can access the best talent in C2. I set very high expectations of myself and my team and then leave people to execute in a manner that works with their lives. Um, It wasn't like that 15 years ago. So my hope is that 15 years from now, we won't be having this discussion about what leadership teams and boardrooms look like because everybody will be there.
1: Right, so so maybe just a quick follow-up, um, because that, that's been driven by the pandemic, right? So this is not even about the growing rise of, of women in biotech, but rather this has to do with flexibility, which is critical, and, um, and affording to source best talent throughout the country. That frankly leads into another conversation, which is not specifically on topic of what I just asked, but that's about how do you grow culture, especially from the ground up, when everybody's around the country, and they're not in the same facility as often? Even though I believe, even pre-existing, right before the pandemic, about half the workforce was typically remote at any one point, anyway. Um, but that—that's a maybe a different question. Okay, so flexibility obviously is critical. Uh, that's one. What else? What about acceptance? What about um, equality? not just pay, I meant voice, prominence, uh, gravitas in the room, which I guess must also come from experience. And then also, what about um, role models and mentorship? Can you we maybe didn't address have all those? those? <laughs> <laughs> no, none, none
0: <laughs> you know, there's something empowering about making your own way and I, I don't want to speak for Natalie here, but I will because we did this together. We, did it together. we we put our heads down and we did our jobs and we had to be three times as good as everybody else. And we were rewarded for it. And that is a two decade body of experience that we lean on now. And when we tell people things, they listen to us because the track record speaks for itself. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for it. I, you know, I'm grateful for the resilience that we had to have to, to get through that. Um, I mean, there, we have no shortage of, of stories of- <laughs> I mean, there's so many. Just, there are so many. I think one thing I will say, everybody,
2: asks about mentors and mentorship. How do I, how do I get mentors? How do I, you know, how do I cultivate mentors? Like I, I have some mentors um, that have been with me throughout my career, a handful that, um, that I still check in with occasionally. Um, but I think the the richer relationships, the ones that have been more impactful, have been my peer relationships, the people that I've grown up with in this industry. Um, Effie at the top of that list. But I think about other people with whom I've grown up in this industry. Angie Yu from Amunix, Jeremy Bender at day one. These are people that we've supported each other throughout. and, And their advice was often more on point at any given point in my career because they were living the same thing. Mm. to this day I talk to those guys about you know what's going on and I need advice on this or that and I find that that is the most useful input that I get so I would say to you know people of you know younger vintages cultivate your cultivate your peer network because those are those are the relationships that are going to go with you. As you know your own, because you've made the guest list, we have a dinner every year at J.P. Morgan of people of our vintage. That's the
1: um, reason to go to J.P. Morgan. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, those relationships from around that table are some of the most Valuable, I mean, valuable. From sort of, I like get a lot out of them, but they're also just deeply gratifying relationships and friendships that that I that are some of the the most wonderful things about twenty years in this yeah. in this industry.
0: And it's it's hard to kind of um, construct mentorship. Those relationships come from just being in the trenches with people and working through things. That that's that's how you develop those bonds. I mean, I. As a lawyer, I or being at, you know, sort of at a and as an advisor, I've tried to help cultivate that by that event that we do at JP Morgan. It used to be that when people hung out at the West End, everyone would hang out in the ladies' room. There'd be like four of us there, four women, yep. <laughs> and we'd all sit around and you know, that would kind of be where we connected. And I kind of took that idea and I started this event at SACS the Sunday night before that conference. And it's become just a very nice, we just hang out, have our derives, look at, you know, they do a fashion show of fancy clothes and me and Natalie comment on why we would never wear those things. But it it is a fun evening. And I think there is a role for things like that. That isn't sort of content, you know, we are now going to teach you how to be a woman in the boardroom because being in the boardroom is being in the boardroom. But there okay. is something to be said for get togethers and and in person able to just kind of see each other and catch up that that is helpful. community more than better set community. Or, yeah. or mentoring right. um,
2: community is um is what is sort of that that's that's been kind of the you know the bedrock mm-hmm. of my career all the way through all the way back from when Effie and I did our first deal together in 2006 when we were both pregnant with our oldest daughters, negotiating with um, a team from Japan, and um, really just freaking them out that they had to negotiate with two big pregnant ladies. Um, that was a bonding experience that.
1: I Bond mean, experience if- for you, or for the Japanese negotiating team.
2: I can't speak Everybody. to them. I, I'm sure, they, I'm sure they, they went home talking about it. But forgot, for us. I, I feel like
1: i wrapped up in a, in a heartbeat. They're like, get, get us out of here.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. If you don't work want. that advantage, you're kidding yourself.
1: Did, did it feel lonely?
2: There were a lot of times it felt lonely coming up. when I, w- I did business development, which was very male-dominated. Um, and so I felt isolated. I felt stereotyped. I felt, you know, I mean, a lot of times I felt underestimated, which I would use to my advantage actually. And I'm, I'm sort of with Effie. I, I I think that there was, (laughs) I developed a lot of grit sort of coming up the way that I, that I came up. Um, and it, it taught me a lot about all elements of the industry, but, you know, just kind of how to navigate it with confidence. Um, and, you know, one thing I learned is you have to be who you are. You can't, you can't sort of try to torque yourself into some persona that you think is going to be more effective because the most effective person you're going to be is when you're being yourself.
1: Right. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken.
2: I like that. Well yeah. said.
1: Effie, what about you? I mean, you had to navigate both the biotech operational community and, well, and the legal, the lawyer community. So.
0: Here's where being Israeli really helped. I really didn't care. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't, it never occurred to me. I just knew what I, I, I was, so, I have always been so passionate about my work and always felt like I found the perfect job for me. People pay me to be obsessional. I mean, there, there's, yeah. so I, I always felt tremendously grateful for that. And like, I was going to work my hardest to do my best and serve my clients. And I think the operating roles really helped there too, because I knew what it was like to be on the other side of the table. So I could really, really felt like I could be of great service to my clients. And that has always been such a privilege and a, a, just, Source of joy for me. So I didn't, all the other stuff I didn't have to think much about. I mean, it was inconvenient pumping and doing conference calls in airport bathroom stalls, but okay, I got some great stories out of it. Yeah.
1: That, that, that's for another time. Okay. That's for our podcast. That's yeah. for your podcast. Effie, yeah. what, what advice would you give young women in biotech now?
0: I, it's not different from advice that I would give anybody of that generation coming up. And interestingly, it's so, it's so different now, at least at, at Fenwick, my male associates t- or even partner, they will take six months paternity leave and they'll divide it up and take two months in the beginning and four months at the end. And I mean, I never took one day of maternity leave. So I think the, these changes are all wonderful and it's allowing thing everyone to be more I mean it's all allowing for a much more flexible balanced life and it's also not I mean I would just say you can have it all you can't have it all all the time that and and I give I would say that to men to women etc and you know and and only do this job
1: if you really love it because it's hard and Natalie, what about you?
2: I, I agree with Effie. I, I don't think that my advice would be gender specific. I think my advice for anyone starting out in this industry is actually what my advice has always been, which, which 26-year-old Natalie could have used, which is be patient. This is a tough industry and there's no, there's, there's no substitute for experience. And, and when you're starting out in your career, you're all intellect, and no experience. And your stock and trade is applying that big brain to stuff that maybe you feel is beneath you. But the quid is you get a seat at the table, and you get to start watching and experiencing it. And then over time, over the lifetime of a career, the balance shifts, and then you end up where I am, which is where my experience way outstrips my intellect. And I say that like partially tongue in cheek, but not really, because most of my decisions are based on pattern recognition now it's not like i don't sort of brain my way through decisions i'm i'm connecting 20 years of the good and the bad and the ugly and mapping that to the the situation at hand so my advice is be patient and wear sunscreen
1: great um (laughs) and wear sunscreen i love that Okay, we're now we're getting into my favorite part of the the podcast something a little personal uh, and something humorous um,
2: because pumping in airport restrooms was that, not, that wasn't good yeah. enough
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Good enough. but that's gonna be in your podcast it's, tell me one thing about you that no one knows
2: that no one knows or that, that no like one, your average listener wouldn't know
1: that the average listener it's up to you and after this everybody will know
2: I dropped out of medical school at Harvard after three days. What?
1: I had yeah. no idea. How did I know that? <laughs> you know
2: that? Oh, see, I stumped oh. you. Now ask me why three days?
1: Why three days?
2: Because I couldn't get a flight home on the second day. True story.
1: And so what happened?
2: Uh, what what it could have
1: possibly happened in, in 48 hours? I
2: shouldn't have gone in the first place, but I was too. There was too much momentum behind it, but I, I got there and I, I remember dropping my duffel bag in my little dorm room and it's sitting there for two days. I couldn't unpack it. And it was just this intense feeling again, sort of, you know, uh, wisdom rather than intellect. It was this intense physical feeling that I wasn't supposed to be there and I had to get out of there. And it, and it took me a while to unravel why that was the case, but I, I picked myself up and
1: I flew home. Was your roommate like like upset? Like they've done? Well, something I had
2: a single. Do? I had a single. It wasn't. It wasn't about the roommate. I okay. mean, <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, it's not yeah. you.
0: It's not you. It's me. It's not you. It's me.
2: All right, there you go. Uh, I stumped you.
1: Effie, what about you? You
0: know, I, I thought. All right, here's one. I don't even think Natalie knows this. Ooh. I was six months old during the Yom Kippur war. And I was left at home with the uh, Tunisian neighbors because my parents were at the front. My mom was a doctor in a mass unit. My father was fighting and they rubbed olive oil all over me multiple times a day to, you know, keep away the evil eye and bring me good luck. And it I didn't worked.
2: I love that story. There
0: you go.
1: Wow. That's yeah. uh, after you and I, I was also six months old at the Yom Kippur war but I'm pretty sure my mom did not rub olive oil all over me.
0: Yeah and you got to stay with your mom. I got, I
1: got to stay with, my mom.
0: with the neighbors. Yeah.
1: I bet you there was better food if there were Tunisians than Polish people.
0: But I was six months old,
1: yeah, right? Yeah.
0: What fair,
1: was I yeah. eating? Tunisian food in Israel is awesome. That's good to know. What's your, Natalie, what's your, your dream job? Compensation aside, career aside?
2: My encore career is I want to be one of those people that writes S one drafts for you know excessive amounts of money because I really enjoy writing and, and I just think I could I could charge a premium and deliver a premium product. Um, that's not my. I favorite. love
1: that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. There's a reason why they charge an excessive amount of money. It's a freaking pain in the a- to write one of those.
2: I, but you know you what? You. Know I mean, I've I've run the numbers on this. your own. Like I could I could make the math. <laughs>
1: a lot of them she's not good she's
0: that good I'm not
2: good I'm not good I would be a ski guide guide. that's what I would
1: do that I would have guessed that I definitely would have guessed that Uh, she's an amazing skier for those of you who don't know Um, Effie what about you
0: well I need more clarity I was taking it as encore career is it encore career or dream job
1: dream job it's whatever you want it to be how's that
0: Well, I'm going to, this, what I have now is my dream. I was meant to do this job. I love, so I trade this experience. Um, So I'm going to answer the encore career. And I'm very, I may do this because I am very committed to it. I would like to open a luncheonette where children come after school and I help them with their homework and I educate them on things I think they should know that they're not learning at school and I feed them grilled cheese. Chicken soup, etc., and I dispense my wisdom at the same time.
1: Are you are you busy like around five thirty and most weeknights? I can put you on zoo with my kids.
0: <laughs> that's perfect.
1: And, and <laughs> I wanna the do all, that. all the S ones are going to go to you.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is like community service. These are not dream jobs.
2: I think mine's more lucrative, but Effie's is probably more fulfilling.
1: More fun. yes. I don't especially. know
2: what I mean, that's about us. But it's not my dream job. It's right. just. It's how I'm going to, it's how I'm going to spend my time. But,
0: But honestly, you have your dream job. I mean, that's, I think the point we, we love what we do.
2: That's true. I do love what I do. And, and, and that is very gratifying as a mother of three daughters. Effie also has three daughters and a son, but as a mother of three daughters, um, I am, grateful that I have a career that I am so passionate about and that that gives me so much fulfillment and um I think I'm good at that it is in that in that sense it is a dream job and I I I get to do a fair amount of skiing so um
0: (laughs) win-win yeah
2: win-win-win
1: you got your dream job yeah well Natalie and Effie, thanks so much for joining us this was absolutely terrific really appreciate it and great to see you
2: So fun. Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.